Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff, that was some kind of Super Bowl, and now football's over, and I'm really sad, and I sure hope there's another sport coming up soon to uh, get my attention and your attention and everybody's attention out there. Maybe you know about one that's coming up. I do. We'll talk about the future of the show. We'll talk about spring training. We'll talk about the winter and things we've missed. But first, guess who just got back today? Them wild-eyed boys that had been away. Spread the word around. The boys are back in town. The boys are back in National League town. Good to see you, Greg. Good to see you, Jeff. May we uh, have, let's call it, thick Lizzie out of this season. We had a lot of thin gruel last season. Uh, Let's hope the Mets uh, serve it up piping hot and uh, satiate us. But in the meantime, good to see you. And again, we'll talk about the future of the show after we look to Port St. Lucie. And to continue quoting from that same song by Thin Lizzie, won't be long till summer comes now that the boys are here again. What a great line. And it's great to see the Mets back in Port St. Lucie preparing for the season. This feels different, Greg, because we don't have the same weight of expectations that we had last year. We talked about on the show, last year's failures were even worse for us because we expected so much from that team. This year, we don't expect very much from the 2024 Mets, do we? I don't. But I'm just happy they're here and getting it together and beginning to feel it a little bit. As noted, it was a great Super Bowl. (laughs) And uh, get what you like out of the NBA and the NHL and college basketball and all that stuff. But right now where I am, it has snowed a whole lot. First time in two years. Maybe it's a sign. The last time it snowed a whole lot, uh, the Mets went out and won more than 100 games. I don't think there's really a corollary there. But I'm more happy than I expected that we are at the dawn of spring training. It always feels to me, especially these last, I don't know how many years, that it feels like it's become the baseball industrial complex, that the whole, oh boy, spring training, pitchers and catchers, baseball season is here the second the Super Bowl ends, always feels a little forced to me. Um, So I wasn't really feeling it. In the run-up, in the various countdowns to, you know, 47 days until pitchers and catchers or whatever. But I'm honest to God feeling it today, this week, and that's good to know. It's good to know I'm still alive, that I still have the, uh, the, the, the blood of baseball coursing through my veins. Um, last season did not make me miss baseball after the fact the way some seasons do wasn't that great i can't believe it's not here anymore i was happy to be done with it and the mets as i'm sure we'll get into did not make the sorts of moves that you know had you panting and exhilaration and anticipation but you know what whoever the hell they are they're there and they are the mets and that port st lucie dateline carries a lot of magic to it so you know let the magic begin, whatever whatever it is. Expectations for a great season, a great team, not that much right now. 
I'm willing to have my mind changed as, as time goes along. So if it's somehow better to go through the winter, not thinking, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, what a great team. Uh, we'll see if that works. But we're here now. We're here in the middle of February. We are here with lots of position players along with those pitchers and catchers. If they're not in St. Lucie yet, they will be. And we will embrace that, I imagine, expectations or not. The predictive models are tempering any high expectations. We have Vips in Fangraphs has the Mets winning 83 games. Another model in Fangraphs has 82 games. Baseball Prospectus's Coda model has 84 with the Mets making the playoffs. Uh, David Stearns yesterday seemed to say, we're going to be a good team. We expect to be in the playoff hunt. But he wasn't saying, as as Brody Van Wagenen did, come and get us. Yeah, different guy, different year. Although, actually, I look at this team as it's coming together and having recently written something about the 2019 season, kind of understanding what Brody Van Wagenen's hype was about, or at least his enthusiasm for the team. Uh, this team feels like it could be a pretty good, okay team. And we now know that being a pretty good, okay team probably gets you into a playoff race. And that changes everything about your season. Um, projecting as a pretty good, okay team also means that you might not be pretty good or okay. And you might just be, you know, playing out the string long before you want to be playing out the string, but it's spring. Uh, never mind the string. It is spring. We don't know. I, kn I know projections are, are close to your heart and looking ahead and trying to figure it all out in advance is something you and a lot of fans like to do. I, I just feel I'm willing to be, I don't want to say surprised. We were surprised last year and not the way we wanted to be. Uh, willing to let it play out that this is the part of the, the season where the convincing begins and I don't want to say unreasonable expectations, but just getting your hopes up a little and because everybody is O and O and that, that includes the Mets and I'm not depressed yet. Let's put it that way, <laughs> not being depressed about the Mets before it's begun. And after what we experienced last year, I think is already a step up. Uh, yeah. David Stearns isn't going to sell what, he doesn't have to sell. But, you know, I, I watched David Stern's talk, as well as Carlos Mendoza, came away with a, a pretty good feeling. Not, oh boy, that this means 90 wins for sure or whatever. Just, I, I get the feeling these people know what they're doing to the best extent they can. And it is a clean slate. And I'm willing to let them, you know, take out the chalk, if that's what you use on a slate or whatever sort of writing implement, and then start to fill in the blanks. And, and that'll be the fun part. The DraftKings over and under number is 82 and a half, which seems reasonable. I don't think that the that number incorporates any midseason changes. And from what we've read, the Mets will invest in the team if they are in the hunts, but they could invest in the team more now. The team could be better, at least on paper, if they sign J.D. Martinez, 
They lost their opportunity to sign Ale Soler. They didn't sign Justin Turner. Uh, Matt Chapman still available. Any of those would be better than the combination of Brett Beatty and Mark Vientos, at least on paper. But I don't think that's what this season is about, Greg. I think what this season is about, to a large extent, is finding out what we have, finding out if Beatty can play, finding out if Vientos can play. So if they need to adjust during the season, they will. But for now, let's see what Beatty can do. Let's see what Vientos could do. Were you disappointed at the lack of moves this offseason? Uh, I'd have been disappointed if I were expecting a lot of moves. <laughs> uh, I kept a list through the offseason. I counted the names. There are 28 major league experienced players the Mets have acquired major league deal, minor league deal, that sort of thing. Number of them are never going to see New York, probably. Some of them might might not see Syracuse. Uh, there's not one name on that list that excites me. There are only a handful who I'm really familiar with, or at least sort of familiar with, and a few others whose names ring a bell, plus a few others who they've already cast off because it's just been that sort of let's throw everybody at the wall, see what sticks, uh, see where we are. Uh, one day in December, one day in January. Um, you know, the only name who really loomed during the offseason uh, was Yamamoto, and we know we didn't get him. Uh, after that, I think it was just a matter of Stearns and his crew figuring out, you know, where where to fill in, where to make this a competitive team versus where it was last year. Uh, you know, some of the names you mentioned who are still available – would probably be upgrades. It's hard to believe J.D. Martinez is still hanging around. And let's remember, uh, middle of February to late March is still a long time. One of the things Stern said was, you know, the offseason now seems to go into February from a team-building standpoint. So there, there's still a shot. Uh, you know, the, the Mets through the years have, have now and then made a late February, late March move. Uh, Dave Kingman both times was a spring training acquisition. Uh, Gary Sheffield, the eve of the season, I seem to recall. Oral Hershiser came in at the eve of spring training the year he was here. And th those are just ones that, that pop into my head. Uh, so, you know, there, there's still some possibilities out there. But the, the larger question of, is it a good idea to see what we have? I think it's a reasonable idea. I think it's reasonable to say in, in the case of third base, which I, I guess is where we're talking, if we're not talking DH, and perhaps we are, um, the two names you mentioned, uh, Mark Vientos and Brett Beatty, uh, some experience at this point, not a ton. Mark Vientos, a more than a cup of coffee last year, but you know not the whole pot. And Brett Beatty, up and down. Uh, to the point where it felt like, oh, God, Brett Beatty, when we were, in fact, early in the season, oh, boy, Brett Beatty, um, hard to dismiss somebody based on one eh, season. So these were players the organization had faith in. They haven't necessarily shown everything there is to show. And that could mean, well, they're just going to be sort of eh. Or, uh, forgive my using that the scouting uh, lexicon there, might be eh, or they might be <laughs> yay. No, they, uh, you know, might need a, a, a bigger a bigger chance. 
uh, more more coaching, more tutoring. Uh, they did something this offseason working in a cage somewhere on their swing. Uh, you know, this is part of the finding out process. So, you know, ultimately, I'm okay uh, going with Beatty and Vientos in the positions where they are being considered and giving them every opportunity to win those positions or or perhaps to lose those positions, but to have them at the outset. Again, it, it is kind of strange to think about J.D. Martinez, a, a really good bat, still at this stage of his career, just to sit there. And maybe the, the thinking on Stearns's part is we're not one bat away, so what's the point of giving those plate appearances to a guy who's not part of our future? But you never know how these things go. Yeah, the the counter-argument to that is, Martinez could be the difference between making the playoffs and not making the playoffs. He's probably worth one win, but they want to see what Vientos can do. Maybe he can do just as well. One thing I liked, I thought, is was seeing Francisco Lindor in camp early working with Jet Williams. Lindor doesn't have to show up early. He's a name. He's got the contract, but he showed great leadership by showing up early, working with a young guy. I was very impressed with that. I'm always impressed by players who show up, established players, star players. David Wright would always show up early, it occurs to me. Uh, you know, you probably took the same survey I did a few weeks ago on The Athletic. Tell us what you're thinking about the Mets these days. Uh, what one of the questions was, who's your favorite player? And I had to stop and think about it because I have like a new favorite player every few weeks, it seems. And none of them really are people I wanted to, to go to the seriousness of filling out an anonymous survey with. And I saw Lindor's name and I'm like, I'm going to check Lindor. And he's never really been my quote favorite player uh, on, on the Mets since he's gotten here, but I just feel good about him. This is before he showed up to work with Jet Williams, like you said. Uh, I think for the last two seasons, once you went through that almost initiation period, that like joining a fraternity, that every big-name player seems to have to go through when they first come to New York and whatever missteps they seem to make or perhaps they weren't expecting uh, the torrent of questions or attention that they get. I can't think of anything Lindor has done wrong uh, as a leader, as a star, as a veteran, all those things you love to talk about. And on the field the last two years, terrific production for the most part, terrific in the field. And if he wants to take it upon himself to be the guy who works with one of our top prospects, a guy who I believe is a shortstop by trade, is probably going to have to play something else. Or maybe by the time Williams is ready, Lindor plays somewhere else sometimes. I'm, again, that, that'll all play itself out. Very happy to see Francisco Lindor and St. Lucie uh, well ahead of schedule. For two years, Lindor has been the kind of guy who, who feels like a franchise player. Pending uh, what will be decided between now and next offseason, that gives us, in my mind, two franchise players. Hopefully, we're still talking about at least two franchise players when we're talking about Lindor and Alonzo. Uh, who is still here and is still very important to the team. For whatever reason, I checked Francisco Lindor, favorite Met. Don't hold me to that. I can have a new favorite Met by next week. I checked Pete Alonzo. Pete Alonzo hasn't checked into camp, at least as of Tuesday. He may be making a statement because he always shows up early. Uh, David Stern said yesterday he expects 
that this will play out through the whole season and maybe into free agency. I think Alonzo wants to stay in a Met, but he wants to get paid a lot of money and the Mets aren't ready to do so at this time. But it's still distressing because this is one of the most popular players in New York. As Stern said yesterday, if he does well, it's good for the Mets. It's good for him, uh, Alonzo. So let's hope that he has it's 50 home runs and carries that into uh, the postseason for us. As was said in the high school musical in which I performed Lil Abner many years ago, what's good for General Bulmos is good for the USA. (laughs) (laughs) It's good for Pete Alonzo. Uh, it can be good for the New York Mets. Uh, you know, this this is a whole topic that I hope doesn't bog us down as fans and as a story all year. It probably will either way if, if Alonzo is not having a great year or as great a year as we think he should be having. Oh, he's, you know, we'll probably think he's feeling the pressure. If he's having a terrific year, then all we are likely to think about beyond enjoying that terrific year is, well, my God, his price is going up and are they going to pay it? And, you know, that's not as much fun as actually watching Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor and their teammates play baseball. Uh, This is just the the business, the business we have chosen, as they Mm -hmm. say, this is, uh, this is the game. And, you know, again, great that the players have, this sort of flexibility and leverage and teams to be fair have the option of saying we can do better than this player in terms of resources and commitment or we really need to have this player uh you and i through our our expressions to each other and on the show uh we like pete alonzo on the new york mets i don't want to see him go uh, he is 60 home runs from the all-time franchise record. Our franchise record isn't that enormous compared to some other franchises, but it is what it is. And I'd like him to have it. I'd like him to surpass it. And I would like him to build it out of sight for a while. Maybe some other slugger will come along later and pass his record. But you know that that's just a function, though, of what he gives us as fans, uh, gives the team in terms of production and is why, you know, we, we don't leave the room when he's batting. We don't get up out of our seat. If we're at the game, when he's batting, he's Pete Alonzo and entering his sixth year. That means something. We haven't had too many Pete Alonzo's and what he can do. So it would be swell if that were resolved in a positive way. If it turns out that on March, whatever, uh, Pete's people and Stearns and, and his people all get together and announce a la what they did with DeGrom in 2019 when it was Van Wagenen and where they, when Lindor, uh, when he first came over, remember, it was in a trade and he had one year left. So it could be, oh, no, he's going to leave. Well, we didn't really know him yet, but it was, so. But still, we had just traded two important pieces and didn't want to see Lindor go. So sometimes these things get resolved before you think, oh my God, it's too late. Or he's going to test the market. David Wright took care of it, you know, in spring, is it spring training? No, it was during the winter. Uh, he was named captain spring training, but it was a year with a year to go. Uh, you know, everything is different uh, for every player. And you, you know, again, you can't begrudge the player 
the right, just like I, I don't begrudge Pete Alonso for not showing up by Tuesday for his week camp is open. I mean, yeah, it's great if they're all there. They're not. They'll be there soon enough. So uh, I don't worry. But yeah, this this was more about more about singing the praises of Lindor than uh, questioning the future of Alonso. But I did bring Alonso into it, and uh, I hope you know at least for this year. Not knock wood. Everybody's healthy. Uh, two franchise players, and that's that's a good start. Yeah, I agree with you that this may be something we hear about throughout the season. I'm sure that Pete will have, and he may have done so by the time you hear this, given his, I mean, I just arrived in camp press conference, and he'll say, I don't want to talk about this all year. I'm focused on this season and helping this team win. I, and then they'll ask him about it every week. So I think we could expect that, right? Yeah, that, that is a bit of boilerplate. The good news for us as fans and people who kind of are connoisseurs of this stuff, Pete doesn't always give you the answers you expect. Wow. So he is entertaining both at, at the bat and when he's uh, talking to reporters. So I, I imagine he, he might find a euphemism and his agent, Scott Boris, might find a euphemism uh, for, for what's going to happen. Uh, the best thing for us in 2024 is he piles his statistics high enough to ratchet his contractual preferences. And I want to call them demands up and uh, the Mets benefit. And all we can do is live in the present. Before we move on, what are you looking forward to this spring? Other than hearing Gary, Keith and Ron and Daniel Murphy in the booth, hearing Howie, Birthday is on Tuesday. Happy birthday to Howie if he's listening, and Keith Rad. Uh, what are you looking forward to this spring? Uh, listen, what what you just said is, is a lot of it. Uh, just the, the feel and sound, and the little bits of news that constitute spring training. But uh, to circle back to that idea of favorite player, as I was filling that out, I realized. Hey, you know what? Starling Marte is technically my favorite Met, if I believe what I said in 2022, and I've. So, so far off my radar, once he kind of disappeared from the everyday in 2023, and it's kind of sinking in that he's healthy again, and he will be in camp uh, playing, hopefully, you know, the, the requisite number of innings one plays to get ready for a new season. And if he's, you know, the everyday, more or less, right fielder, uh, that's a lot different from this team without a healthy and productive Starling Marte. So the idea that Marte can be back to the 2022 version uh, on some level is really something to anticipate. Uh, finding out how the rest of the outfield shakes out because now we're in, you know, it's funny, a year ago or the, the last offseason, we got Brandon Nimmo back. And Brandon Nimmo is that rare center fielder who's productive on offense and dependable on defense. And you just, now we have him for the long term. It's going to be great. And suddenly it's like, well, thank goodness we can put Brandon Nimmo in left field. <laughs> we have Harrison Bader, a, a defense first center fielder. We have a few other guys hanging around. And it's kind of stunning to realize that after that, that long buildup to Brandon Nimmo as a top, not just an everyday center fielder, a top center fielder, because you remember early in his career, they seemed to stick him in the corners uh, a great deal, you know, sticking Conforto or somebody like that in center field. And they finally settled on Nimmo and suddenly, you know, time goes on. And hey, what, what do you know? He's the left fielder. So we'll, we'll see how 
that plays out. Remember, remember when when we started this podcast and we were talking about Nimmo or Marte as the leadoff hitter, Nimmo or Marte in center field, and now neither one of them, you know, both both part of the plan, neither one of them in center field. Kind of uh, interesting how that works. Uh, from a other side of the career coin, I mean, how how can you not want to watch what you know? We talked about Beatty and Vientos. Uh, those early days where you're going to see some of the non-roster invites, uh, not, not 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 the quadruple A guys, but the prospects who are going to get a few at bats here and there. That's always nice to hear about. And again, it's always not nothing to read into, but it's just it's going to be nice whoever's doing the games on SNY during the spring uh, to be you know calling the name Jet Williams or Luis Angel Acuna or whoever uh, you know gets gets a few reps. Uh, same for the pitching. So I, I don't have a, uh, you know, again, the Marte thing jumps out at me. I don't really have a, a checklist of, uh, I got to see this. I got to see that. I'm just, you know, again, more, more broadly happy than specifically looking for anything. And Marte is a great answer because he was such an important part of the 101 win team. And then when he got hurt, the team's fortunes started to fade away as we uh, know, but if he's healthy, that's that's a great sign. I think that's part of the reason why they didn't sign J.D. Martinez, because they're going to want to rest Marte and put him at DH. What I'm looking for, though, I want to see if one of the young pitchers steps up. The Mets last year had two future Hall of Famers in the rotation. It didn't work out this year. They have... Uh, as of they have no certain future Hall of Famers in this rotation, but I'm looking forward to seeing Mike Vassell and Dominic Hamill, Blake Tidwell, Tyler Stewart, and especially Christian Scott, who's emerged as the top pitching prospect. He's a big guy, by the way, 6'4", 215, and he could m- impact the team this year, certainly next year. Any of them could, especially Vassell, who pitched a no-hitter last September in Syracuse. So maybe one of them will step up. I'm looking forward to that. Sure. Uh, we're, the, we're the pitching rich Mets. <laughs> Traditionally, we're not at the moment. Uh, you know, you look at the, whatever the rotation is supposed to be uh, right now, and it's five established veterans who don't feel like a rotation, don't feel like a unit yet because they haven't been a unit yet. And some are in better position health-wise than others, probably, to count on. Um, it's not an exciting bunch, except for Kodai Senga, who excited us last year with the way he, I, th- I think, beat expectations for the most part. And the first time I was actually a little bit excited this offseason when I read something about the pitching lab that the Mets uh, have been uh, instituting. Inst- instituting is that the word on that installing it uh implementing whatever uh not not so much that i really want to read about the pitching lab but just gave me you know the idea that this this is something we're going to concentrate on again not not that they haven't tried to you know cultivate pitching and not that they haven't cultivated pitching within recent memory we you know went went to the world series now nine years ago but still uh you know we we lived with that rotation that we put together of young homegrown or at least home developed guys, a couple came in trade, but came to the major leagues as Mets. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's always a lot of fun when you have your own pitchers and all the names you mentioned, uh, you hope will all <laughs> grow in it, grow up to be uh, big, healthy starting Met pitchers who can do lots of great things. 
So we've had sort of a lull in in that uh, tradition, if you will. And, you know, Tyler McGill is still around. And I know that doesn't get either one of us excited, but he showed some stuff late in the year. We know David Peterson is rehabbing and, and getting it together, be back eventually. And, you know, guys like that, uh, you just kind of want to aim higher at some point. Or you want to be surprised to the point of being you know what a freezing cold take National League Town had on Tyler McGill 2024 Cy Young candidate right. I don't know that happened but uh, listen we we tried it I, I can't say you tried it the other way I mean you're always trying something uh, you know Justin Verlander pitched for a team that went to the uh, the ALCS and Max Scherzer pitched for a team that won the World Series so you know maybe it was us maybe it wasn't them I don't know, but, uh, you know, these guys, uh, you know, one of these guys is going to have an inning that he just lights up the, the gun and people are going to say amazing things. And, and we'll live off that for a long time, where, wherever that guy is concerned. Remember what he did in spring training? Oh, my God, wasn't that great? Well, you know, what's he doing in Binghamton this year or wherever? So bring it on. And bring on Tyler McGill. He has a new pitch. So maybe that will propel him to that Cy Young and our freezing cold take will embarrass us. I hope so. The first spring game is a week from Saturday, and we can't wait. I'm going to ask Greg about what's gone on between our last show and this show. But one thing I want to tell you about, when we last spoke in late December, I said we were going on an indefinite hiatus. I'm letting you know that we will be doing shows as events warrant or when we just want to, but not every week. Our next show will be our opening day spectacular. Look for that on March 26th. So you're asking, Jeff, what am I supposed to listen to until then? You're in luck. As the National League Town family of podcasts announces a new podcast entitled Grapefruit League Town with me, Jeff, as your host. Yes, your second favorite National League Town host steps into the solo spotlight with a limited series of shows covering my upcoming month in Florida and my spring training games watching the Mets. After I go to a game, I will report back with what I saw, whether anyone stood out, what it's like going to a spring training game, and we will preview the team going into the season. Note that these episodes won't be as long as I won't be talking with anyone else. If you subscribe to NLT, you will get GLT, Grapefruit League Town, in the same podcast feed. So please subscribe, especially because those shows will appear sporadically. I hope that you will join me for Grapefruit League Town. The trailer, as we say in the podcast business, will be out on February 22nd with the first episode on February 26th after the Mets play Washington in West Palm Beach. And by the way, Greg, remember, you named the show Grapefruit League Town. I may have planted the seeds, but you are going to make the grapefruit tree grow. And hopefully you will have nothing but sunny skies and lots of sunscreen to help you uh, in your reporting. And I'm sure it's going to make March a lot more fun for our listeners. So thank you for doing that. And before we go, Greg, tell us about the winter. What did we miss? Well, just from, from a Mets standpoint, I think we have to mention uh, 
two two moments. Uh, one I think was pretty happy, which was David Wright stayed on the Hall of Fame ballot. One of our last shows in December, we talked about Mets on the Hall of Fame ballot and encouraged our, our many listeners among the BBWA to, uh, to consider voting for all those guys. And no, uh, that probably didn't happen. I don't think any Mets are going into the Hall of Fame uh, this uh, summer. But David Wright got 6.2% of the vote, which warmed my heart because you need 5% to stay on. Uh, it doesn't necessarily give him a foolproof launch pad to grow his total. But it was nice to read some of those otherwise tortured essays and columns that are written by Hall of Fame voters about why they voted for this guy and not that guy. And, and the people who said they voted for David Wright said, I don't think he deserves to fall off the ballot. He had an incredible peak and deserves more consideration. And that's really all you can ask for when you look at the, at the whole of David Wright's career. Uh, you know, there seems to be a bit of a trend toward players with shorter but still significant peaks then that arc might have derailed some other candidates in in past years uh i'm just glad david wright gets another shot at it i, I hope it's not one of those things where oh i'm on the ballot again and oh i'm not going to get in again uh, i always think back to harry carson the great linebacker of the new york football giants and how every year he'd be on the pro football Hall of Fame ballot and for the longest time kept missing and it toward the end of his stay on the ballot he said just take me off at this point I can't keep going through this can't keep being told this is your year and then it not being his year and he finally made it which uh, also warmed my heart by the way but um, David Wright staying on the Hall of Fame ballot I think was uh, from a uh, non-transactional point of view uh, best thing that happened to a Mets fan in the offseason. Uh, less happy, obviously. Uh, we said goodbye to Buddy Harrelson in January. And we, kn we knew that was going to happen someday in the sense that we knew Buddy Harrelson had been suffering as an Alzheimer's patient for quite a few years. And now and then you'd read something about, uh, you know, Buddy had moved into assisted living and Buddy doesn't necessarily recognize his family and things like that, and it broke your heart. So you understand that when the inevitable happens, you can't necessarily curse the, the fates, but uh, just for a moment to bring it back to a, a brighter place. Um, Buddy Harrelson, one of the greatest Mets we ever had. Uh, I, you know, I think about Buddy Harrelson, what is it, 13 seasons playing for the Mets? And then after a couple of stops, he came home for the longest time. Minor league manager, broadcaster, coach, coach for the 1986 champs, which is, of course, a beautiful counterpoint to him being the shortstop on the, the 1969 champs and the shortstop on the 1973 pennant winning uh, team. And eventually manager, which is always kind of rough because what do they say about managers hired to be fired? So we kind of kind of left the Mets universe, uh, started a new organization out in Islip called the uh, Long Island Ducks, which he always said was the greatest thing he ever did in baseball, brought professional baseball to a part of the tri-state area where there was none and was even more beloved because of that. But we remember Buddy Harrelson as, you know, the heart, the spirit, uh, just 
the soul of the Mets when he was at his best, which was for a long time. Uh, like I said, 69, 73, you can't write the story of two of the greatest years in Mets history without talking about the shortstop. Uh, you really felt it in 73 when he was out for part of the year, you know, always kind of ran into certain injuries. When he came back, along with a couple of other players who'd, who'd been ailing, uh, it was just a different team. And he was just so important to those teams and such a good fielder. Uh, a gold glove winner once, an all-star twice. Um, every pitcher, starting with his roommate on the road, Tom Seaver, swore by Buddy Harrelson's glove. Uh, and, you know, I can still see him in the opening to Mets baseball on Channel 9 when they play the scratchy instrumental version of Meet the Mets. Uh, and there was this footage that it felt like they've been playing for years. Buddy Harrelson leaps in the air and spears a line drive. And, you know, that wasn't just a highlight. That was a way of life. And keeping the infield together and being pretty productive for a little guy <laughs> at, uh, at the plate. Not, not a home run hitter necessarily, but go go look up what he did to Bob Gibson, other really good pitchers. Uh, he, he had a knack for hitting certain pitchers. Uh, could run. You know, one of your your Met leaders in triples, that sort of thing. But, you know, statistics and awards, uh, we could cite them. But that's not really the Bunny Harrelson story. He was just almost, I almost want to say the Uber Met, the guy you think of when you think of what it meant to be a Met, especially when we were growing up and the kind of guy who, you know, again, right in the middle of everything. And yes, right in the middle of a, a little incident with a player named Pete Rose in the middle of the 73 playoffs. I guess that's also something he's, he's famous for on a more universal level. But again, I just think of him out there, number three, uh, every day and being you know this very friendly guy, a uh, guy talking to reporters, talking to Ralph Kiner, going on Kiner's Corner, uh, talking to Bob Murphy on the radio. Uh, broke my heart a little when the managing didn't work out because you could feel fans turning on the results, hopefully not him. And, you know, he would come back from time to time for special occasions and be cheered like enough. Like the managing never happened. And, you know, I'm glad. So that, that was a, that was tough news uh, in the middle of January. Uh, but you also understood that, you know, considering what he was suffering from, what his family was suffering as a result from uh, time came. So, I didn't want to let this opportunity go by. I uh, didn't want to go into a new season without acknowledging somebody who really is. If you were around uh, when Buddy Harrelson was in the New York Mets uniform, which was for a long time, uh, you'll never forget him. And uh, again, it's a, uh, it's a privilege to remember him. I think Buddy Harrelson felt like one of us because he stood up to the bully. Pete Rose was a bully. And he didn't back down. We always we always had his back after that because he had our back when he stood up to Pete Rose. Yeah, and, and remember what allegedly precipitated all of this beyond the, the double play ground ball that uh, led to the slide into second base. Uh, John Matlack had shut out the Reds, a two-hitter in game two of the 1973 NLCS. And Buddy Harrelson, as a way of complimenting Matt, like said, the Reds look like me out there hitting. And self-effacing, typical Buddy Harrelson. 
referring to Tony Perez and Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan and Pete Rose as looking like him, uh, understanding that 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 was the big red machine out there. And I don't think uh, it meant anything terrible by it. And if this is what the Reds needed to fire themselves up, well, it didn't really work, did it? And I think it speaks well for Buddy Harrelson. And what the hell speaks well for Pete Rose that as the years went by, they became teammates in Philadelphia. But more importantly, over the years, they became pals. They did appearances together, uh, signed pictures of the fight together. So I don't think anybody could stay mad at Buddy Harrelson. Uh, certainly not when he was in a Mets uniform. And uh, yeah, one of us, again, I, I, I use that phrase before, Uber Met. I mean, it's, it's easy to say this guy's Mr. Met, aside from actual Mr. Met. But really, you know, other than, say, Ed Cranepool, I can't think of anybody who really fits that description to a T uh, the way Buddy Harrelson did. It always seemed weird uh, <laughs> that he was wearing a Texas Rangers uniform for a season, wearing a Philadelphia Phillies uniform for a couple of seasons, um, that if he was busy with the Long Island Ducks, that he wasn't at Shea uh, for, for some event or another. Like I said, he did come back now and again. Uh, that he was a little bit maybe on the outs with the organization. Everybody is eventually on the outs with the organization. So I wouldn't read too much into that. But just such a part of your everyday life as a fan, if you grew up when we did and became Mets fans when we did, and you didn't worry about a ground ball to short, and you didn't give up if uh, the number seven, eight, wherever he was batting in the lineup, uh, that hitter came up. Uh, knew what he was doing out there and cared about the fans. You always knew that. And even if you're just watching on TV uh, or watching from the mezzanine or the upper deck, you, you knew that about Buddy Harrelson. Uh, just a mensch. I had one interaction with Bud Harrelson, and I don't have Greg's beautiful Mets mind, but I remembered it as soon as Buddy passed because I went to a game and I remembered that Ken Boswell pinch hit and flew out to end a Friday night loss. Went to the game with my parents and my brother. And I went through the ultimate Mets database and found it. <clears throat> June 8th, 1973, a Friday night, the Mets and Tom Seaver lost to the Dodgers 5-3. But what's notable for this conversation is that Bud Harrelson was signing autographs I think it was during the game. That's my impression. It doesn't seem to make sense, but he was signing autographs during the game. And my brother and I left our seats and went to get autographs. And I still have the picture that he signed. Greg used it in his column at Faith and Fear. And he called my younger brother, Lyle, Tiger. <laughs> and as soon as I got the news, I texted my brother. And he wrote, so sad. Tiger. He remembered it too. So Bud Harrelson, as you said, an Uber met always in our hearts. That's a great story. I, I want to believe that happened during the game. I'm going to say it did. Uh, that's now in my beautiful Mets mind, as you uh, kindly called it. You know, I, I remember Buddy Harrelson was one of the special guest speakers at Hofstra University when Hofstra, under the auspices of the late Dana Brand, planned and eventually uh, put on a 50th anniversary academic conference uh, to celebrate uh, in 2012, how long the Mets had been around. And 
after he spoke uh, on the dais, uh, he went to sign autographs. You know, a table set up. He had his autobiography out there and would sign it and whatever. And I was kind of watching from the side. And every, certainly it seemed like every woman and maybe every man, I don't know. But I noticed uh, different women being offered the chance to try on his world championship ring. Uh, I don't know if it was a 69 or 86. He might, because I, I read a story about how uh, he'll let people try on his 86, but he didn't want to lose his 69 because that was the one that meant the most to him. Anyway, my point being that three different women who were at that conference who I knew came up to me at different times after that signing period and said to me, Buddy Harrelson, let me try on his World Series ring, giving them the impression that for that moment, they were special enough to Bud Harrelson, the great net. He let me try on his ring. Not perhaps understand he was letting everybody try on the ring. But I, I think it was just a that sense of that connection that he had with Mets fans and Ducks fans and baseball fans and understood what the game meant to us, understood what it meant to the people who, who paid their money to go see, see them play a game who, uh, who watch it and read about it and talk about it all the time so he was just you know an incredible ambassador for the game incredible citizen of the game and and you uh you hope you get players like that in your life uh, to root for and we had a great one and uh and on top of all that he knew a tiger when he saw one Rest in peace, Bud Harrelson. Our condolences to his family and friends. And that'll do it for the first episode of Season 3 of National League Town. We made it to Season 3, Greg. Well, we've, we've already uh, gone farther than the UK's version of The Office, which was two very memorable seasons. We've gone farther than uh, Gary Cohn and Howie Rose as broadcast partners. They did two seasons before they were split up to their different media. Hey, Freaks and Geeks only lasted one season, so uh, we must be doing something right. Here's to a great season three of National League Town and in a fantastic season of Mets baseball ahead. We'll be back with the next episode of National League Town on March 26th. Again, our opening day spectacular. And in the interim, look for Grapefruit League Town on this same podcast feed with me, Jeff live from Florida, beginning next Thursday. We thank you for listening. So until next time, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2024, music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify.